Well, good morning, everyone. As Steve said, welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Uh, my name is Seth. I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And let me just say that I am, I'm particularly jazzed up today uh, as we look to kind of like close down a series that we've been in for about the, fa- the past five weeks or since about the turn of the calendar year into 2016. And as you've seen from that bumper, as well as you can see behind me, that series, <clears throat> excuse me, we've been calling Creatures of Habit. Before we dive into this conversation this morning and we wrap up the series, um, let me just say that if you haven't had an opportunity to, to connect in this series yet, maybe it's your first time you're a guest with us today, or even if you have connected with the series and you're just looking for a refresher to kind of connect with some of these concepts as we look to kind of move beyond this series and to how what we've talked about in this series can Im- impact us beyond the series itself, um, all of our messages can be found on our website, uh, all those conversations, so medinaeast.graceohio.org. Uh, you can click on the messages drop-down, and uh, you can either see those or engage those conversations uh, in video format. So if you really enjoy the smiling faces and the pretty faces of the communicators, you can go that route. Uh, but if you're a podcast person, we have those out there as well. So I want to encourage you to sync up with that. But again, uh, as we think about this series, if you haven't been with us again, or if you have and you're just getting a refresher, we've kind of been saying, this. Um, We've basically been looking in Creatures of Habit at how the Bible, we've been examining the Bible and kind of looking at how it outlines for us the nature and the character of spiritual growth. And as we have uh, sort of undertaken that exercise, we have drilled down a little bit further into um, some what we might call spiritual habits or spiritual rhythms that God has made available to us and that we find in the Bible to help kind of catalyze or jumpstart our spiritual growth. So it's a great conversation to begin at the first of the year to kind of identify that and and so on and so forth. And uh, as we've tracked through this series, uh, if you recall, if you were here uh, in our first week, in that kind of introductory time together, we uh, laid out a foundation from a small passage of scripture out of Galatians that I think is really going to be helpful not only for our conversation today, but again, as we look to apply some of these principles and interact with spiritual habits going forward beyond this series, I think it's going to be important for us to revisit that foundation and then draw some conclusions and then walk away hopefully more fortified in this understanding of what spiritual habits are, what they do, and how they're <clears throat> effective for spiritual growth. So again, that passage was in Galatians, and I'm going to toss it up on the screen here real quick just to refresh ourselves and reset the conversation a bit. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. Again, two small verses basically says this, uh, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you sow to please the flesh, from the flesh you will reap destruction, or some translations have corruption. And if you sow to please the spirit, from the spirit you will reap eternal life. So basically, in a nutshell, what we've been doing with this passage as we examined it, we said, we said this about the principle that's baked into this passage. We said that <clears throat> this passage says, if you invest in good things, if you invest wisely in good things, as Paul uses his analogy here from an agricultural metaphor, if you sow good seed that you can bank on, like it's the way the world works, you can bank on a good rate of return, you can guarantee something comes about. <clears throat> and again, agriculture, that would be if you sow good seed, you will reap a good harvest. And that is the same in a life with God. If you invest in good things in a life with God, you are guaranteed to reap this idea of eternal life. And, and in that first conversation that we had together, we talked about how eternal life... 
uh, yeah, it talks about like a, a life that's in the future that's never ending, but it refers more to the quality of that kind of life. And so we said if you invest in good things, if you invest in the spirit, that we kind of reap that, that quality of life. And while that is unbelievably true, and while the Bible does give us this and other principles, especially as they correspond or relate with spiritual habits, um, there's actually another way that the Bible approaches this uh, understanding of spiritual growth that, that kind of brings in a little bit of attention, <clears throat> creates a problem for us as we think about this principle of investing something and expecting a return. And that's this, that if you look at the Bible over and over and over again, the Bible gives us this understanding that salvation, and this word salvation is kind of like a, uh, an experience of a life and a relationship with God. The Bible over and over again says that salvation is not by works. It's not by works. In fact, repeatedly, <clears throat> if you were to comb the scriptures with this, you would actually discover that the scriptures basically say that there is nothing that a person can do to earn a status with God, to earn that relationship with God. And furthermore, the scriptures go on to tell us kind of why that is or how that happened or what, why that came to be, that situation came to be. Because the Bible talks extensively about this thing called sin. It kind of refers to it as a power or an influence that's on every single person's life. And that sin has basically fractured or broken uh, human beings' relationship with God. Everybody. And this, this stands true for everybody. And so sin is not just a power that fractures a relationship. It actually like decimates who we are as people and what God intended for us. Such that the Bible almost gives us this flavor, if you will, that uh, because sin is present in our lives and in the world, that every human being is like wandering around in a sea of spiritual darkness. And we're confused about some really important things. We're confused about who God is. And we're kind of fuzzy on how he, what he thinks about us and how he interacts with us. And also that we're confused and fuzzy about ourselves, like why we're here, what we're to do, what our purpose is, and, and why would God create us in the first place. And so we're confused about those things. And now sin, the presence of this power in the world, is kind of this first act or this first movement in the story that scripture tells. It's the story of something we call the gospel. And so the, the gospel is something that we have at the Medina East Campus kind of packaged in like three movements. And the first movement of that is that we are radically sinful, that that is true about us. And we're hopeless without God. But that that first act then leads us into the beauty of this second act, which is that we require a radically gracious God to do things on our behalf to bring us into this amazing relationship. And so as we start to think about that a little bit, we see that all across scripture, but it starts to pop up in some kind of monumental places. And in fact, like one of the keystone passages that teaches that salvation cannot be earned, that life and relationship with God is not something that can be earned. Well, a hallmark passage of that is found in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. And there Paul says, again, it's the same Paul that talks about this as sowing and reaping, investing in reward principle in Galatians. The same Paul in Ephesians chapter two says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he says, this is not of your own doing. It is a gift from God. And as if that weren't enough, then he says, it's not by works, lest a person should boast. So if we press into this a little bit, think about for a second, what makes a gift a gift? I think there's one thing that I know about a gift. A gift is something that is received and it's not earned, right? Right. And as you start to think about a gift, you realize that a gift, the term itself, doesn't necessarily describe an object or a status, 
but it instead describes how an object or a status comes to us. Now, that's probably a little fuzzy in itself, so let me put some skin on that for a second. Allow me to give you an example. So I have a four-year-old son at home. His name is Caleb, and man, I love this dude. He's such a little dude. I mean, we, we, we have this little game that we play, and we call it ah-ah-ah. And ah-ah-ah is basically the noise we make when we beat each other up. <laughs> so <laughs> I love this little dude. And man, I tell you what, like every time we play ah-ah-ah, I just get this like, man, I, I have so much love and care and affection for this little guy. And, and, and it's, just, it's just amazing an experience. Now, let's just say that um, my, my son likes Legos. And so let's just say that I decide that I want to buy a set of Legos for my son, which I don't know where he gets liking Legos. No clue. I love Legos, if you didn't, if you didn't catch that. Um, let's just say I decide to buy um, a set of Legos for my son, and I want to give them to Caleb as a gift. All right, so the Legos themselves, if you think about it, there's not necessarily any inherent gift quality in those Legos, right? Because I could easily go out to the store, I could buy that same set of Legos, and I could play with them myself, which might actually happen in my house from time to time. But if you think about it, what's the difference between me giving Caleb those Legos and me keeping those Legos for myself? How does the gift principle work there? Well, really, it's based on the relationship that I have with him, right? So it's the relationship that makes those Legos something more than they are without that relationship. The relationship makes those Legos something more than they are without that relationship. And I think the same goes true with God, especially when you realize that as you look at Ephesians 2, it has this word gift, which we've unpacked a little bit. It also has this idea of God's grace operative in our lives. And when you discover that, especially in the New Testament, the word gift and the word grace are so tightly bound, they're actually from the same root word, that you realize that like God's grace has something to do with this gift. And so to define grace just shortly, because we don't have a ton of time, we could do an entire series on grace and talk about that. But the best way that I've ever heard grace described is this. It's a bit technical, but I think it's helpful. Is that grace is a friendly disposition from which a kind act proceeds. A friendly disposition from which a kind act proceeds. Now think about that for a second with the example of me and my son and the Legos in mind. That I have as a father, I am predisposed. Like I have a disposition of love and care and affection. Like I just think the world of this kid, right? And so that is an immaterial thing. That doesn't take concrete form. It's the way I feel. And yet that friendly disposition is the motivation to have that disposition manifest itself in some sort of demonstrable, concrete gift. Some sort of act that gives a materialness, if I could say to what is immaterial about how I feel about my son. And so if you start to think about God's grace in that regard and what it says here in Ephesians 2, it's like we get this impression that when a loving heart extends a gift for another person's benefit, that's when we start to tap into or unfold the majesty of grace. That God's grace is, it, takes, it manifests itself, his care for us, his love for us, manifests itself in, in a gift of sending his son and giving us salvation. So, What do we say about all this? How do we wrap it up? Well, we say that, right, salvation is a gift. It's not something that can be earned. But here's the deal. Here's the problem, right? You starting to see it? Like, if salvation is a gift, why all the fuss about spiritual habits? It's a legitimate question, right? I mean, aren't spiritual habits those things that I do? 
with regularity and repetition, that's the kind of the definition of the word habit, to contribute somehow in this relationship with God? Isn't that my own power if I'm engaging in a spiritual habit? Don't I do that? And, and don't, doesn't that then mean that like with that investment return principle that I contribute something? Because if I sow to please the Spirit, I reap something back, this thing called eternal life. And let's just assume that we agree with the fact that I could contribute something to my salvation. The next question logically follows, we ask, well, how much? What's the percentage? What's the interaction? How does that all work? And even if we agreed with some of that, wouldn't that sentiment be what Ephesians 2 calls earning? I mean, wouldn't that be working somehow for my salvation? And I think the truth is we could comb the entire scriptures and the Bible gives us an answer to some of the tensions that I'm intentionally exposing this morning. But unfortunately for us, we don't have the time nor the energy and effort ourselves this morning to be able to do like a complete and thorough analysis of the Bible and what it teaches. Now, rest assured, if you're that kind of person, if you're the analytical mindset, if you're that kind of person, like go after that. The Bible has that for you. And I encourage you to dig in deep into some of those principles. But unfortunately for us this morning, we don't have the time because we'd have to go in, we'd have to do this exhaustive study, we'd have to pull out all the concepts, we'd have to synthesize the data, and then we could present some sort of bullet-listed response to this tension. But we don't have that time. And again, rest assured that that's there. But the Bible doesn't necessarily always ask us to look at it in terms of like a bullet-pointed list of what we're to do. The Bible frequently does actually not... um, give us straight up statements of what's right and what's wrong. It does do that. But actually, I think there's a better way that the Bible is asking us to read itself that might help to give us clues to address some of the tension that we find when we read the material in its pages. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that if we look at the Bible as a story, rather than a bullet-pointed list of right and wrong, it makes a little bit more sense. The Bible is a story. Now, if you were to take every single verse of the Bible and you were to collect it all together and you were to to divide it up by like literary genre, different groupings, you would actually discover that over 60% of the Bible is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not, this is right, this is wrong, bullet-pointed statements. 60% of the Bible is narrative. It's a story. And then on top of that, if you were going to add all the prophecy that you see in the Bible especially in the book of the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, and we, we could probably think of prophecy as something like God's running commentary on events that were happening in history in real time, meaning events that were happening in the story of the world. You could go ahead and tack on another 20% to that. And what does that mean? That actually means that over 80% of everything that we see and read about in the Bible is not right and wrong, black and white. It is given to us in a story. A narrative. And so now you're probably thinking, well, why does that matter as we're looking to trace some response to this tension between salvation as a gift versus my efforts and spiritual habits? I actually think it matters a lot. And I think the answer is simple. I think what this tells us, the fact that the Bible is a story, is that if we are, if we are looking at it this way, what we're given in the Bible is actually we're given more often living illustrations of what a relationship with God looks like rather than the bullet-pointed list. 
So when we come to the Bible with questions like this, grace or my work, or both, or how do they operate, we're probably not going to get one succinct statement that addresses the way that we phrase that question, the way that we bring it to the text. Instead, the Bible, because it's a mostly narrative, it actually invites us to examine the lives of the people who interacted with God in real time, in real space, in real history, in a real relationship with real emotions and all the other reels that you can pull out of that. It actually invites us to examine those lives, see how they operated in a relationship with God, and then begin to draw some conclusions as to how we, if we're following Jesus, might operate in the same way, might think the same way. And so if you think about it, even like the Gospels themselves, the fact that there's four Gospels and not one is a a testament to the fact that the Bible is a story. It's asking us to look at the characters and their relationship with God and draw conclusions as to how we might do the same. So given all of that, given all that setup, I actually want to, this morning as we look to trace down the, the tension that we've developed, I actually want to look at, you guessed it, a very small story that is found in, you guessed it again, a gospel, okay? So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 4, Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, and we are going to be uh, looking at verses 1 through 4, four small verses. And let me just say, as some of you are turning there, um, we're going to have the words uh, up on the screen, or the text up on the screen, and if you did not bring a Bible with you, we have some Bibles underneath the seats in front of you, you can access that. And let me also just say, if you don't have a Bible to call your very own or if you have like an outdated, archaic translation of the Bible, we actually just want you, please, take that Bible that's under the seat in front of you, take that home. It's just our gift to you. We want you to get connected with what God says in the Bible. So again, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In those Bibles, it'll be page 676. And this is what Matthew says as he tees up the story. He says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the story that we're introduced here is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And that temptation goes on beyond verse 4. But it's enough for us here to pause for just a brief second and dig into some of what we're seeing. And again, this is a story, so it's going to, uh, it's going to require us to observe a little bit of what's going on. So as we start to put our observational goggles on, I love that, observational goggles on, uh, one of the first things that I think we notice is that right in verse 2, Jesus is engaged... right. In the temptation, he's engaged in a spiritual habit. And this spiritual habit is the spiritual habit of fasting. Now, real quick, I think we need to unpack what fasting is if we're going to kind of understand what's going on here. So fasting is basically this. A definition is like, in fasting, I remove something from my life. I remove something from my life that I habitually and repeatedly reach for. And I remove it from my life for the purpose of better understanding my absolute dependency on God. So, for instance, we see Jesus here kind of doing that. The idea is that he, he removes something from his life and that removing something from his life creates, eventually, this spiritual hunger. And it kind of, it's a pain and it gets his attention, as it does with a lot of people that fast food. And more often than not in the Bible, fasting is referred to people who abstain from food. 
And so Jesus removes us from his life, and so there's an emptiness, there's like a void created that helps him realize that, you know what, human beings condition before God spiritually, like we're all spiritually starved, and we experience that if we are not connected constantly in a download of what God says about us, of what God says about him, and what God says about the, word around, uh, the world around us. If we're not getting the download of God's word, if he's not speaking, fasting is pointless. And I think that's what Jesus does here. He understands, based upon his response to the devil and his temptation here, he understands that removing something from his life in a spiritual habit is not just enough because he knows that if you remove something, whether or not you uh, fill it with something else, it will be filled with something else if you're not intentional about it. So Jesus knows that he is able to pair this idea of fasting, this removal of something from his life, with the reality of the need to download from God what he says, okay? So that's what Jesus does here, and his response indicates that. And so now, now we're given a little bit more to this story, and we can see how the tempter, the devil here, as he approaches Jesus, it's a little bit more vivid for us because what, what is the devil doing? He is really trying to mess with this principle of pairing fasting a spiritual habit with the word of God. He's kind of messing with Jesus' psyche here a little bit, isn't he? I can almost like picture it in my mind that it would have gone a little bit this way. This is probably more overdramatic than what we're given, but nevertheless, it's a story, right? I, I anticipate like the devil after Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, which is about as long as a human being can go without food. The devil, I could see him just waltzing up to Jesus. Be like, hey, oh, Jesus, bro. I see you're out here in the wilderness. That's cool, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's weird. So listen, uh, Jesus, you look pretty hungry. I bet that's an uncomfortable feeling. Incidentally, like you're hungry. Is that really the result of what all this carrying on in a relationship with God is all about? I mean, Jesus, it seems to me that apparently when you say you're connected with God, all that results in in your life is you feeling hungry and starved. Jesus, can you really trust a God like that? You, and, and is that God really out for your best, best interests? Some of us have heard those voices before, right? In our own lives. But you look at Jesus here, his response, I mean, if we're given, if we get, put a little bit more skin on the story in that regard, like the, the psychological and physical and, and emotional pain of something like fasting, you can see how much more vivid Jesus' response is here. He says, again, man does not live on bread alone. He lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is like, sit down, devil. God is and provides for my every need. He is all I need. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, this, this physical hunger that I'm experiencing doesn't even compare to the reality of a spiritual hunger that I would experience if I did not have that download of a good and gracious God speaking to me in my life. I mean, look at how attuned Jesus is to the Father here. It's almost like Jesus is echoing the words of the psalmist in Psalm, chapter, in Psalm 23, where the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, meaning God's got the right path laid out for me for what it means to be truly human and to be all that I can be in my life. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. And so now we're thinking this story is, is, is starting to shake us up a little bit, Right? And we're thinking, man, this is a great story, but do any of you sense a little bit of a, a problem when you come to this story? 
what Jesus is doing here? I mean, I think many of us have thought of it, and maybe I'll put some language to what we might have felt or be feeling right now. I mean, some of you are probably thinking, Seth, dude, what you're saying is great. I know. (laughs) What you're saying is great, and it might be true, but I'm not Jesus. I mean, Jesus is God, right? All Jesus has to do here is step into the divine phone booth, rip off his Jesus suit, and be revealed as the incarnate word through whom the entire universe was created. I mean, isn't that, isn't that who we're talking about here? We're talking about God. We're talking about Superman, right? Extraterrestrial alien, not from our world, comes down, lands in our context in the middle of Kansas or a wilderness, And then you discover he's got superpowers that no one else has. And then he starts just going around saving everybody. That's Jesus, right? Me? I'm more like Batman. You know, I'm I'm a little bit more like Batman. I can find my way through a difficult situation. I might have some clever contraptions and a utility belt that miraculously meet whatever need I'm facing right then and there. And then I might be able to get by on some brains and a good bat computer, but man... I am not Jesus. I'm not Superman. Incidentally, just as, just as a side note, everything that is wrong with the upcoming Batman v Superman movie that's coming out in March <laughs> is right here in this passage, right? Let's just set the record straight. Let's just clear the air. There is no way that Batman would last five seconds. Yeah. And about with Superman. Why? He has power, Superman has powers that Batman just doesn't have. See that in this passage, like that's a big, that's a big deal. But I understand that sentiment, I completely get it. That's you, that's me too, I wrestle with that quite a bit. But I actually think, because again, this is a story, it's a narrative that's inviting us to see parallels and opportunities for for our own lives. I actually think that what we're dealing with here is an illustration of Jesus as the complete human being. As the complete human being who, as we've said about stories in the Bible, is giving us an example of possibilities that are open to us. But they're possibilities that are open to us because he has done it first. He has been obedient to trust God in the midst of temptation in a wilderness. He became, as the scripture says, obedient to death on a cross so that he could do away with the old, confused, broken relationship life and be raised to a new kind of life and relationship with God. These possibilities, I do, guys, I do think that these possibilities are open to us, but only because Jesus went first. Now, I think what happens to us is that if we go into this passage, if we miss a crucial element, because we might be asking, well, how is that possible? I don't understand this. Well, if, if we miss a crucial element, we usually jump to one of two very opposite conclusions about this passage. They're two opposite conclusions, but they are equally as dangerous. And the first conclusion is the one we've already unfolded. It's Jesus is God, man. He is Superman. He possesses powers and abilities that I just simply don't have. So there's no way that if I was out in the wilderness being tempted that, I, that I'd ever do that. Done. 
this story then has no like implication for my life. It's just a little tale about how Jesus did what he did, and that's, that's it. That's one way we could look at the story. But the opposite way that's, I think, equally dangerous is that we could say, okay, I'm going to raise my hand, and I do agree that Jesus is a human being, and since it's a story, he's giving me an example of possibilities that are open to me. All right, so that means I'm looking at Jesus. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm not like that guy right now, so what I really need to do, Jesus fasted, that's it, I'll fast. I'll fast so hard that like there is a gaping hole that appears in the pit of my stomach. Like I'll just, I'll just grip my teeth because what I need to do as a human being is, okay, I just need to be more like Jesus. I need to grip my teeth. I need to develop some spiritual sweat on my brow and I just need to start climbing the ladder of spiritual growth. I need to become more spiritual climb this ladder, and then maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will accept me, or maybe God will say, wow, you know what, you really tried hard, so welcome into an eternal life kind of relationship with me. Both of those are possibilities if we miss a key characteristic in this passage, a critical key part of this passage, equally as dangerous. See, the reality is, is often in the story, we'll jump right to Jesus, we'll jump right to the fasting thing, We'll make it all about those two responses. But I actually think that Matthew gives us that critical way of reading this the right way, right off the bat, right off the bat. And my question is to you, what if we read Matthew 4.1 before we read Matthew 4.2, where Jesus fasts and then goes on and is tempted? Look at this again, Matthew 4.1. Jesus was led into this wilderness temptation by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. You see, Matthew, as he tells the story, he figured something out. He knew that people who are led by the Spirit are the ones that can actually resist temptation and the devil. And those people who are led by the Spirit can embrace spiritual habits like fasting in this case in the way they were always meant to be received. You see, if you're like me, some of us think that the the phrase spiritual habits, again, is just that I got to try harder or I do this or I contribute something. And it creates this chaos within us about like, well, the Bible says that God's grace is how I'm saved, but I got to work because I got to reap this eternal life thing with God in heaven. And so spiritual habits become a lot of, just a list of things to do to make me more spiritual. Like I'm not spiritual enough. So I should engage in a spiritual habit or I should do this or I should do that. And then maybe eventually I'll incrementally climb that ladder and I'll be a really spiritual person. But what if we looked at spiritual habits as capital S spiritual habits? The tools that are offered to a person who is led by the Holy Spirit the tools to engage and embrace the reality of the power that is already within that person because they are being led and indwelt by that same Holy Spirit. You see, that's actually how the Bible wants us to understand the word spiritual. That word spiritual, it actually comes from a Greek word back in the original languages, and it's pneumatikos. I'm going to put that up on the screen for you. Pneumatikos. It's actually where we get our word pneumatic. And that word pneumatikos has this core word of pneuma. And pneuma means breath or wind 
or spirit. It's kind of like the air of life, the thing, the principle that makes things alive. And so that tikos is a suffix that's penned on to pneuma to make it an adjective. So it becomes defined as like of the stuff of breath, wind, or spirit. Again, it's an, a pneumaticos is an adjective that describes a noun. It modifies or gives description to a person, a place, or thing. And in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, the word spiritual, the word pneumaticost, is used as a reference to a person who has the Holy Spirit living inside of them, making them spiritual and giving them the power, the tools, and the training to live a God-honoring life, to live a life just like the one that Jesus lived as the perfect human being made in the image of God. And as we encounter some of these principles, it still can be a little, little rough for us. Like, okay, wait, what? Uh, spirit, dwelling, power, all this kind of stuff. And I actually think that the best way to begin to think about this is to think about golf. I know that was out of left field, which is also itself not the correct analogy. That's baseball. But just track with me here for a second. Some of you are avid golfers. I feel sorry for you. Um, some of you are not. I'm with the ladder camp, but nevertheless, all of us know that if you have an avid golfer, you have an insane person. Um, golf, man, I tell you, golf is that sport that people love, some people love, and they love it so much that they would go to the depths of hell and back just to go on the links. I mean, it's insane. Now, me, I, I am not a good golfer, so that's probably why I fall in that camp where I don't like, like golf so much. And I actually think I undersold that. I am the worst golfer that has ever walked the face of the planet. And this was made very real to me about six months ago when I went to the driving range with a friend. And um, let me just say that when I went to this driving range, God successfully liquidated me of all the vestiges of pride and ego that were in my life. I can stand before you today saying, I am the most humble humble person on the face of the planet. Because there's no more ego left after this experience. Okay. So here's what, let me tee it up for you. That's that's terrible. So um, I'm at the driving range. And you know how the driving range, they have that overhang. It's like an aluminum overhang that keeps you out of the elements. Because apparently people are insane enough to go golfing in the driving range when it's pouring down rain. Something like that. So there's that aluminum overhang. And um, I I was sharing this, this, uh, this bucket of balls with my friend. And I kid you not, as I'm, as I'm hitting these things... I kid you not, I counted at least, at least 10 times, probably more, when I, when I swung the club through the ball, the ball defied the laws of physics and went straight up at a 90 degree angle. And it hit the underside of this aluminum roof. And let me just tell you, aluminum is so acoustically unforgiving. <laughs> it's terrible. It's like... Every time I would hit the ball and it would hit this roof, this ungodly cacophony of sound would reverberate through an open-air area. (laughs) Reverberate. And the very next thing that everyone experienced was all eyes were pointed toward this guy, (laughs) right? But as I think about, like, golf, as I think about the issues that I have with it and that story, that helped me realize that I just, my problem with golf is that I have a bad swing. I lack like a fundamental to play the game of golf. It's just, I have a terrible swing and I don't know how to fix it. 
Now, I could do a lot of work to try to fix that swing. I could go buy Golf Digest. I could read it. I could pour over it and, and like, grab out all the little bells and whistles, the tips and tricks about how to land the ball a little closer to the cup. I could go online and YouTube the uh, Rory McIlroys of the world and get tips from them. But it still, it, it won't do anything for me because I have a fundamental flaw in my swing. The reason that I slice, the reason why I miss the mark, the reason why I don't put the ball close to the cup, the reason why I hook, the reason why I hit aluminum ceilings at driving ranges is because I have a fundamental flaw in my swing. So as I was talking with a friend of mine about this flaw in my swing the other day, they actually turned me on to a new contraption that was just recently created that is supposed to teach you the fundamentals of a perfect swing. And it's called, greatest name ever, the Robo Golf Pro. Robo Golf Pro. But so now you've seen the Robo Golf Pro, right? Now think about this. Pull everything together from what we said this far. The, the thoughts about God's grace as a gift in our rescue, the thoughts about spiritual habits and repetition and discipline, the reality of the power of the Holy Spirit that leads a human being who follows Jesus. Think about all that as I just read for you what just a little article or an excerpt promoting the RoboGolf Pro from its creators, okay? The creators of the RoboGolf Pro, this is what they say about it. RoboGolf Pro lets the trainer show the golfer the actual, perfect, ergonomic, efficient, and physically correct golf swing for your ability and physique. RoboGolf Pro is the only machine in existence that, listen to this, that takes your club and physically guides you through the perfect swing. Up until now, golfers have had to rely on feedback by a coach, video analysis, or funny-looking swing contraptions, as if that wasn't one of them, right? But there was no way for a golf coach to have the ability to record your swing, then make corrections to it in a computer, and finally give you your swing back in the form of a robot-assisted swing. Now, if you don't catch anything else from this analogy, just tune in right here. You hold on to your club, and the robot guides you through the corrected swing over and over and over again in repetition, rhythm. Guides you through your corrected swing each time a little faster. And then it says, as you try to fall back on old habits, if you sow to please the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap destruction. As you try to fall back on old habits, the robot resists you. <laughs> and he forces you to follow each component of your golf swing perfectly. If you sow to please the Spirit, from the Spirit you will reap the quality of life with God forever. What is the number one benefit of the Robo Golf Pro? The golf ball does what the golf club tells it to do. If your mechanics are correct, then your body will follow. RoboGolf Pro teaches you the swing you need, and then you can adjust your body to match it. Listen to this. You have been given your perfect swing. Guys, don't miss this. This is huge. It's not about golf. It's about the Holy Spirit giving you the power 
to hit the mark of God's intent for your life as a human being made in God's image. And then it's about the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus opening up the vault of spiritual habits. His tools, we don't own them. We didn't manufacture them. They're tools to help us align for a Christ follower the reality of that power that is already living inside of us. The spiritual habits are the everyday tools that the Holy Spirit gives us. And he gives us an opportunity then to tap into the power that's already ours because the Spirit himself has been placed in our hearts. How? Because of Jesus' work in dying and rising from the dead. I mean, think about this. All that we've said with this in mind, all the ingredients are there from the tensions that we surfaced earlier. Number one, the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, is a gift from God. It's not by works, lest anyone should boast. The Holy Spirit comes into a person's life when they make the determination that I want to follow Jesus' way of living and I know there's no way I can manufacture that by my effort. And so I'm banking on, I'm relying on God to do it for me, to give me the power and the tools. And that power is the bestowal of the Holy Spirit on a person that follows Jesus. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says verbatim, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Elsewhere, the same Paul says that. Elsewhere, he also says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So the truth of the matter is when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus and they say, I want to live life the way Jesus did. I want to live it your way, God. Boom, They're not only, they not only receive the gift of salvation, they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to give them the power to do things that they could never do on their own. The Spirit is a gift from God. He also enters into our lives because of grace. God's friendly disposition from which the kind act of sending the Spirit proceeds. God's affection and love and care and desire for us to be everything that he wants us to be manifests itself, that heartbeat, that mentality, that disposition manifests itself in the giving of the Holy Spirit to a person who's made a commitment to follow Jesus. The Holy Spirit also trains followers of Jesus in the rhythms of operating in that new life now. These are the spiritual habits, how we operate in the new life. We actually don't need to wait until Jesus comes back and we go to heaven to experience eternal life, the quality of that life. It's been made available to us in the here and in the now because of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, the spiritual habits, what they are, they just become merely tools And they're tools that are extended to you. They're not your tools. They're not man-made. They're not manufactured. They're not the next and new and latest and greatest way to ascend the ladder of spirituality and spiritual growth. They're the Spirit's tools, and he makes them available to followers of Jesus to realign ourselves with the truth of the power that is already coursing 
inside of us. And why? Because Jesus did it first. The perfect man led by the Spirit to accomplish everything on our behalf that we might have that same Spirit and be able to live life in a brand new way through his power. So right now I'm going to ask the band to come up as we kind of close down not only our conversation today, but we close down the entire series. And I know we've been working at kind of like a 30,000 foot level, but I want to get super practical for a second. I want to bring this down and land the plane effectively. Um, Basically two audiences that I want to address. The first is if you are a follower of Jesus. I actually want to challenge you. We've been in this series creatures of habit. We've talked about these spiritual habits. You may have heard them called spiritual disciplines. I actually want to challenge you now that you know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a power that you could never possess by yourself and you have access to these tools, this rhythm, this repetition, the Spirit's tools. I want to challenge you for the next two weeks to intentionally, every day, embrace a spiritual habit. For two weeks to intentionally embrace a spiritual habit, to run after this concept, to help realign yourself with the power that's already in you as a follower of Jesus. Now again, this is not, as Pastor Dan Gregory of the Norton Campus, who was here with us last week, it's not taking some spiritual coin and depositing it into a divine vending machine and expecting to get something out. This is an experience of the rhythms of what the Spirit has offered to you. So even if you Google spiritual disciplines or spiritual habits, there's a huge list. But even the ones that we've talked about this series, maybe for you the challenge is to fast. Maybe there is something that you need to remove from your life with the acknowledgement that you have to pair that with hearing from God to fill that void. Maybe it's time for you to get something out of your life. It might be food, but it might be something like social media something that you habitually and instinctively reach for that you're going to remove from your life for the purpose of taking that same time and connecting with the power that's already at work in your life. Maybe for you it's fasting. Maybe for you it's, I'm not in a regular habit of engaging in God's word and hearing from him anyway. Maybe it's just you for the next two weeks intentionally carving out 15 minutes, 15 minutes every day to connect with what God says about you, what he says about himself, and what he says about the world around you through his word, through the Bible. Maybe it's 15 minutes. Maybe that 15 minutes for you every day is prayer. Maybe it's cultivating a conversational relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe you take that 15 minutes and because it's a conversational relationship, maybe you take the first seven and a half minutes and you just pour it all out to God because he hears us. But then maybe you take the next seven and a half minutes and you just shut up and listen. Maybe that's you. Maybe for you, it's biblical community. Maybe you know that the next two weeks, like as soon as you run out that door, you make a beeline to the Welcome Center and you get some information on our life groups. Maybe it's running after biblical community and saying, in the next two weeks, I am going to pursue checking out a couple life groups. Intentionality. Maybe it's as simple as deciding that if you live near a metro park, you're going to go for a walk 10 minutes every day. And all you're going to do is just get silent with God And you're going to reflect on the beauty of everything that he's created. It is a reflection of who he is and how much he loves us. And maybe that just results in you praying and praising him for everything that he is and everything that he's done for you. Whatever it is, grab a hold of it 
two weeks, and I guarantee you, it sounds like the Matt Swanson thing, right? <laughs> I guarantee you, though, that when you come out of that two weeks, that you will have grown spiritually. I guarantee you that that decision that you have been putting off because you literally don't know what to do, what to decide, see if you don't make that decision with more clarity and with, with more wisdom because you've connected with the God who wants to give you the power to make the decision and to make it well. See if a relationship that you are in, that there's a, maybe there's a tension there, maybe the relationship is fractured and broken, see if that relationship hasn't turned a corner. See if that relationship hasn't made a step toward healing of that brokenness. Just see if that doesn't happen. See if you don't see the value of connecting in biblical community. See if you don't see that after two weeks of engaging in these spiritual habits. The reality is, guys, that man doesn't live. We don't live. Human beings don't live on bread alone. We live on every single morsel of what comes out of God's mouth to express his heart for us. And that is made real in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that second audience, if you are a person that does not know Jesus and you've not committed your life to him, I actually want to challenge you to take the time that we have right now in just singing and playing these songs together just to do some business with God and just to reflect a little bit. Maybe it's time to stop pursuing all the dead end stuff in your life. Maybe it's time to stop doing this thing under your own power. Maybe it's time to say, Jesus, your way of living is much better than anything that I could manufacture because it hasn't worked in the past. And maybe it's just a simple, yes, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. And when you say that, guys, you, you receive the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to embrace a relationship with God and a life that you never would have been able to live on your own. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that all of this comes from you. It's a gift. It's not by works, lest we should boast. God, I want to thank you for relieving us of the burden of trying to manufacture our own spirituality. I want to thank you for relieving us of the burden of trying to manufacture a relationship with you. You've already done it, and you did it at the cross. And Jesus, we are so thankful for your sacrifice, for putting to death the old way of living that just got us going nowhere. God, and we want to thank you for showing us the possibilities of a new resurrected kind of living by your power. But Jesus, we also want to thank you for giving us an example in your life of being a person who was led by the Holy Spirit, who had the power of God to do things that we could not do if we were just left to our own devices. So God, I pray, Lord, that wherever we're at this morning, individually in our seats, God, I pray that if we're following you and we're that kind of seasoned veteran in a relationship with you, that we would be challenged afresh to align ourselves with the power that's already in us by embracing a spiritual habit in the next couple weeks. And God, if there's a person in this room, if, if we're those, those folks in this room that haven't committed our lives to you, haven't handed the keys over and said, I, I need you to take me where I need to go to be who I know I'm meant to be. God, I pray, Lord, that you would do the amazing work that only your spirit can do, which is bring somebody over from death to life to follow Jesus and to discover the power to live in a brand new way. God, thank you for these spiritual habits. 
Thank you, Lord, that we are, uh, we are realigned with the vision that they're yours. Spirit, they're your habits. And we just ask, Lord, that you would do the business that only you could do in our hearts as we proceed forward. In Jesus' name.